listening to Expand Your Horizons, the podcast for English language teachers and wanderlust indulgers. This is Lauren and Shannon, teacher training duo of TefelHorizons.com. Each week, we bring you teaching advice, travel tips, and inspiring stories from around the globe. Here's to making this big world a little smaller by connecting ESL teachers everywhere. Hello, and welcome to Expand Your Horizons. I'm Shannon, and today I'm talking to Richard Grant. Richard began his career in the TEFL industry by teaching English in Indonesia and has since gained years of experience as an ESL teacher abroad and in the United States. He's a certified CELTA trainer and assessor, so he's had the opportunity to train on and oversee CELTA courses around the world, including China, Brazil, and Thailand. He currently lives in Washington, D.C., where he continues to work with native and non-native speakers of English as a professor and the director of his university's first-year composition program. Today, we're talking about all his experience in the TEFL industry, key differences he's noticed about teaching native and non-native English speakers, advice he'd give to anyone thinking about teaching abroad, and we're just geeking out a little bit about language in general. So thanks for joining us. And Lauren, unfortunately, is not here with us today. We are recording in Portland, but I'm here with Richard Grant. Hi, Richard. Good morning, Shannon. Thanks so much for being here with us. We're really excited that you are our second ever guest on the podcast. I'm I'm charmed. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So Richard, you and I have worked together for a long time, but for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you do, how you got into this field? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in Maine and professionally, I got really interested in language, honestly, when I was five. I was riding in the car, we were listening to the radio and someone decided to change the station. So they were moving the dial around and then all of a sudden it stopped and there was this stream of sound coming out, which I didn't recognize at all. But all of my siblings, and there were four of them in the car at the time, all of them knew what it was. And I said, what is, what is that sound? And they said, it's French. I live you know, near Canada. So there was French on the radio sometimes. I, I thought, how magical that they all knew what that was. So I, I got kind of intrigued by language very early on. Um, now, I work at a university in Tacoma Park, Maryland. I direct the first year writing program there. And I teach classes in literature and uh, children's literature and young adult literature composition, research, um, a good variety of things. Wow, yeah. Um, I didn't know that about you. That's very cool that you have such a clear memory of understanding that there are different languages, that different languages exist um, from such a young age, and that that kind of kicked off your entire career now in this field. Yeah, um, another thing that happened, too, when I was in the seventh grade, I had a, a fantastic English teacher who loved playing with language and every week uh, as part of our spelling quiz and it's weird to think of that because in most in most languages when they're at school they don't have spelling quizzes because right. their languages are you know tend to be more phonetic yeah based. spelling actually makes sense in other yeah. languages and um but he would always give an extra credit quiz that had something to do with with word play and hmm. Um, we were studying you know, prefixes and suffixes, and suddenly it started, you know, making me a lot more aware of the language that was going around on, uh, going on around me, and also that I was using. So I started 
paying a lot of attention to words and their their roots and their stories. So that too also kind of got me uh, launched in this direction. But in terms of English and teaching, I've known I've wanted to do that since I was in fifth grade. Wow, okay. Um, Really cool that you've known this whole time. So we know where your interest started. Um, Tell us a little bit more about your background. Like how did you get from there to now being a professor and you're also a CELTA trainer. Um, So you've been not only teaching ESL, teaching native speakers English, like first year writing you mentioned, um, you also train other teachers who want to become mm-hmm. ESL teachers. So what, what did that path look like? So I mentioned fifth grade. One of my teachers asked my best friend and me if we'd be willing to tutor a couple of students who were struggling. And so pretty much every day we'd spend about an hour helping out uh, a couple of classmates. And I enjoyed it. I liked, I liked the feeling I got when my classmate understood something that he hadn't understood before. Mm-hmm. And that happened again in high school. I was asked by the special ed coordinator to work with a couple of students. And, and I did it for a couple more years in high school. And I thought, yeah, I, w- I think I could enjoy this. And that's what I was thinking in fifth grade. I, th- I thought I'd like to teach. After my first year of college, and I went to college in, um, in England, uh, about a half an hour west of London, one day I, I, I saw a notice on the bulletin board and it said, hey, we're looking for people to teach English, um, different countries available. And I thought, that sounds interesting. So I went ahead and signed up and <laughs> I uh, was accepted to teach in Indonesia. Wow. So I got that all arranged, and then I sent a letter to my mom saying, by the way, <laughs> mom, um, I know you were expecting me to come back home after I was in, in England for a year, but actually I'm going to go to Indonesia for a year. Um, so I did that, and I, I enjoyed it so much I decided to stay for an extra year. And uh, then I went back to England to continue with my studies. I was getting an English degree at the time. And... I was liking the history stuff quite a bit too because that gave good background to the to the English, to the language, to the literature. Mm-hmm. So I picked up a second degree while I was there and I, I enjoyed the college experience so much I decided to stay there for all four years. So I did. And by the time I was done with my undergraduate, I had a very strong interest in history and a very strong interest in English language and literature. and. Honestly, it was quite a struggle for me to decide what to do mm-hmm. at the master's level. So I went ahead and got a, a master's degree in English with an emphasis in language. And that got me uh, a little more involved with, with teaching and, and focusing on you know, language testing, sociolinguistics, psycholinguistics, comparative grammar studies, uh, all things that, to my delight, I realized I was absolutely fascinated by. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I finished my graduate school, uh, that was a two-year program. And um, this was back in the States? or This, this was, was still, yeah, actually. Okay. So I went to undergrad, I did it in England, and then in the States it was in Southwest Michigan, actually. All not, right. What, maybe an hour from Kalamazoo over in the um, uh, St. Joseph, okay. Niles area. I think it's like an hour from oh, Kalamazoo. Yeah. Um, a place you know a thing or two about from your own experience. 
And from there, I moved to the Washington, D.C. area and worked in a private language school in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia. Beautiful area. Cobblestone streets in a couple of the places. And it's right next to a, <clears throat> it was right next to a building called the Torpedo Factory, which is exactly what it was in World War II, but it had oh, been wow. converted into about 300 studios for artists. And it's right on the banks of the Potomac River. Um, wonderful, wonderful place. And at that job, we had oh, anywhere from 50 to 150 students at any given time who were living in the U.S. with a host family. So they'd spend their evenings uh, with an American family. And then during the day, they came to the school and had several hours of class, and they had electives they could take, like trips into D.C. or um, lots of things. So mm -hmm. I did that for about seven years and just oh, wow. had a ball. Absolutely loved it. And are these high school students, college they, students? Um, <clears throat> and they tended to range in age from about 15, especially in the summers. We'd have a few younger mm -hmm. learners in the summers. But most of the time, uh, they were 18 and up. Okay. And, so had maybe, you know, finished high school in their own country and were now coming mm -hmm. to the States for this sort of intensive language, exactly. cultural experience. Yes. Okay. Yes. Sometimes they uh, came to help out their English for their jobs or they were mm -hmm. kind of prepping for university. And the school that I was working for um, had programs that would, uh, some students would stay with us for a year, year and a half. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. And then maybe transition into a university here in the States as well. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a wonderful experience. <clears throat> I went from that to, I actually taught at a Jewish yeshiva uh, school for uh, about six months. Mm -hmm. And then I started working at the university where I am now in Tacoma Park. And I've been there for the last 18 years. And I love my job, again, because there's a lot of variety. And again, even though I'm not teaching most of the time, I'm not teaching ESL classes per se, a large percentage of the student body comes from abroad. So having the ESL background um, helps tremendously. When they ask me questions mm -hmm. about the language, I know, and you know, poor other people in the English yeah. department have <laughs> no sure. idea. You know, they tend to focus more on literature and stuff. But uh, yeah. I've always loved language. I, I love discovering how how it slowly reveals itself to me in the kind of mysterious way that it works. But I find that endlessly fascinating. Definitely. And I think that brings us to an interesting question or an interesting difference with teaching English. I think a lot of people think of teaching English as what you mentioned as, um, you know, the intro to writing or first year writing class, mm -hmm. teaching native speakers. So people who already speak English and you're helping them with things like, I don't know, structuring essays and yes, you know, developing ideas, organizing right, their ideas, supporting arguments, punctuation, mechanics, that sort of thing. Right. Too. Yeah. I think a lot of people who maybe don't know as much about this field, the field of teaching ESL specifically, or who are just getting into this field, there's maybe an assumption that it's very similar, right? Like if you're a native English speaker, you <laughs> yeah. can just kind of teach English. No, just because you speak the language doesn't, you know, I can drive a car. That doesn't mean I can fix the engine or answer questions oh, about it when it breaks down. Right. And uh, just because you speak the language, um, 
usually that means you don't know very much about it because you've been doing something, you know, subconsciously and unconsciously right. uh, your whole life. So, yeah, so you know, there's how... a huge difference between between working with native speakers and speakers working in a second or you know, other language. Definitely. And I hope I'm not putting you on the spot by asking you this. Put but, me on the spot. <laughs> but what would you say are some of the biggest differences you've noticed? Like what types of, I don't know, questions, for example, do you get from native speakers in your classes versus non-native speakers? Or what are some things that you feel you know, you're more prepared for with your language awareness than maybe just a, an English teacher who hadn't worked with international students. I think maybe students. the biggest difference, Shannon, is the the level of motivation mm. that international students have tends to be quite high. Yeah. Because they realize the the value of being aware of language. Mm-hmm. And we've got to remember, too, that being multilingual is actually the norm around the world uh, the rarity is 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 someone who's monolingual um like most of us <laughs> <laughs> yeah for example yeah and i've i've worked with lots of students who speak four five six seven languages mm-hmm. um that's what most people do and yeah. uh, um so having a big awareness or much greater awareness of languages is is the first thing I notice. So we have language to talk about language. We call it meta-language. So mm-hmm. if I if I ask a group of native speakers and I uh, I work with people who are going into teaching, middle school, high school, um if I ask them to, you know, talk about the subject, identify the subject in the sentence or or the verb, you know, so that we can talk about it and and understand what's happening. I find that many of them have no idea. Yep. Um, you know, they've heard about you know a predicate. <laughs> they heard about gerunds, maybe. Yeah. But most maybe of them have no ago. idea. So right. the biggest thing is a lack of awareness of language by native speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if you have if you have some facility with a second or third language, it also makes it a lot easier to to learn other languages. Um, so I find the the pace at which non-native speakers learn about a new language tends to be faster. Mm-hmm. They tend to be more motivated, more open-minded, more tolerant of ambiguity with language, which you have to be. Language is are constantly in, in a flux. They're always changing. And having a, a high tolerance for some uncertainty can only help when it comes to language learning. Absolutely. So I think those are the major differences. That makes a lot of sense. And they care about learning. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And I think, no, I of mean... Of course, there are native speakers <laughs> who do too. But There are. But I mean, you know, most of us going to school, I'm sure, weren't terribly excited about learning English. I mean, I was an English nerd. So for me, literature was fun and grammar was fun. Um, But for most people, 
I guess what I'm trying to say is I think as native speakers, when it comes to English, we have the luxury of not really needing to care that much. Yes. Like if you make a mistake, it's, oh, whatever, you're a native speaker. It's it's sort of a normal mistake. Everybody makes Everybody mistakes makes in their first so language. And, you know, half the people that are listening to you aren't going to notice. Yeah. Um, but I think as a non-native speaker, that's not a luxury. You have to learn this stuff. You have to be motivated because that's the difference between you being able to communicate your ideas and not, or Absolutely. you sound incredible or not, or, you know, you being taken seriously or not. So yeah, that's an interesting distinction. And it's interesting that it's so obvious for you when you're working with these yeah, two different really kinds is. of students. It really is. But I, I love both. I love the challenges that both bring, bring with them. Uh, yeah. For native speakers, a lot of time it's it's the challenge is to get them interested, to help them realize what they realized when they were four-year-olds. Right. When we're four years old, rhyme is so much fun. You know, there's oh, a reason is. why Dr. Seuss is such a, a you know best-selling author. It lang playing with language is fun. It is, and it gives us an opportunity to be creative. Um, but by around seventh grade in the u.s system so we're talking about 12 years old or so english classes tend to start focusing on 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 literature and the dissection of the ideas and the poetry and the short stories and the drama and that formal study seems to be the point where for many many people their innate ability and we we do language more than anything else there's nothing humans do more than language. Oh, that's fascinating it's, to think about. It's, you know, you, you watch dolphins play and seagulls up in the wind and, and flying around. And that's what we do with language when we're kids. Mm -hmm. And by the time we're around 12, 13, and we start, for some, who start studying it formally, it kills off the, the, the interest in it. Which is just really unfortunate because there's so much there. It's a gold mine of 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 history and culture and mm -hmm. and um, balance and weirdness. It's, yeah. it's it's a reflection of who we are as a species. So of mm -hmm. course it's going to be wacky and wonderful all at the same time. Uh, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, you know they say the the most the most common verbs in all languages are the ones that are, uh, they are the ones that are most irregular. Now, we could have another chat about that sometime maybe, mm -hmm. but. Right, but you're talking about, you know, for example, go, we don't say goad in the past tense, we say went. Right. And those and very common ones are the verb be. different. Be is the exactly. most complex verb in the, in the language by far, and it's the one that gets used the most. Right. Um, and that's true not just for English, but also for other languages. So. Um, I feel like I veered off topic, but it's, it's easy just... to do with language because it's so, it's connected with everything that we do. Um, it's so important. Yeah. And such an interesting topic. Um, okay. So to steer back to you. your career path a little <laughs> bit, um, okay. So you've talked about teaching non-native speakers, teaching native speakers, um, you are also a CELTA trainer mm -hmm. and, um, you do a couple of CELTA courses a year. Mm -hmm. Luckily we get to do those together sometimes. Um, how did you get into CELTA training? So when I was working at that language school in Old Town, Alexandria, at the time, Georgetown University, which is just a, a few miles from, 
from there was running a CELTA program. I'd never heard of it at that point, uh, but the director of the school had, he was very familiar with, with the Cambridge programs. And mm-hmm. he said, I hear that Georgetown is, is dropping at CELTA and I would really love to pick it up and, and run it at, at our school. So <clears throat> they, um, they said, we'll send you off to England for a month to study how it's done. Oh, wow, and okay. uh, so you can have background to to get a program started here. Well, anytime someone offers to send me off somewhere <laughs> for, for a free month, professional development, it's not only good for them; it's good for me too. So I said, absolutely. So yeah. I, I went to London for a month and and uh, went to International House, which is a well-known language school there and around the world, and observed a couple of courses, Celtic courses, being run concurrently, and. I, Shannon, I took a two-year master's degree with, in English with an emphasis <laughs> in language. I learned more yep. about good teaching, about how language works in, in, in the first week. Yeah. There's no question. I learned more about ESL, ESL teaching, human learning than I had in my two-year master's program. Yep. And I was hooked, totally sold on it. Hook, uh-huh. line, and sinker. <laughs> and I have been ever since. Um, that was back in 97. So I've been doing this for, I guess, about 22 years. Is that right? Okay, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I was I was uh, on fire for this, and I still am. Uh, I have not lost the excitement I have about the program. Cause I really believe in it. It's based on very sound learning principles mm-hmm. so um so i uh, did the training up in in london came back and had a wonderful uh trainer from from england uh, her name was susie abel and susie came over and ran the first couple of courses together with me to show me the ropes and um loved it so have been doing it ever since which is awesome yeah, yeah. um it's interesting. I I assumed this about you, but I guess we hadn't actually had this conversation about sort of how instantly you were hooked on the way we're taught to teach on the CELTA course. I had a very similar experience when I took the CELTA some years ago. Yeah. Um, it know, is amazing how different it is from how most of us were subjected to learning <clears throat> throughout our educational careers. Yeah. Sonia van Prague, was, uh, she was from the Netherlands and she was working at International House in London. And I watched her first in what we call input sessions. That's where the trainer, CELTA trainers, um, talk about various aspects of learning or about language. Right. It's and, like the and, classes uh, that trainers teach the candidates that how to teach, basically. Yes. Yeah. And so there's the input session. And then later in the day, uh, the trainees are, are putting those things into action, um, what, what they've been doing in their input sessions mm-hmm. as, as the course progresses. And I watched how she taught, and I thought, this is a completely... I hadn't realized the potential for a better classroom experience mm-hmm. until, until I watched her. And I thought, wow, I really wish I had been doing... I did some okay stuff when I was working in Indonesia, but I really wish I had known then what I was learning then on, on the CELTA course. 
it would have been a much better experience for me. <laughs> yeah. And it absolutely would have been a much better uh, experience for the students. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, CELTA has, that sounds so silly, but CELTA has really changed, changed the way I view what happens in a classroom. And then that has gone into my other classes as well. A lot of the things that you learn on a CELTA course are transferable skills. I've always said that. Yeah, yeah I uh, so 100% I'm, agree with that. Yeah. So whether you're teaching literature or writing or <clears throat> research methodology, <clears throat> excuse me, sociolinguistics, yep. or a cooking class, which I've had the privilege to uh, Amazing. teach a couple of times at, <laughs> I had at my no university. Idea. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to chat about that. Yeah. Um, what I learned on my CELTA course helped me be a much more effective teacher in in those other areas as well. It's really nuts. I know. And I think on every CELTA course I train on, there's always a candidate or two who sort of comes up to me, I don't know, middle or end of week one, just kind of like wild eyed, like, (laughs) wait a second, (laughs) why haven't I been learning like this my whole life? Um, And they're on fire. As you said, they're super excited about sort of this way that they've discovered that learning can actually be where it's engaging, where it's participatory, where it's fun, yes. it's hands-on. I don't know um, if you remember Ryan from the Portland course last year. Ryan was one of those one of those candidates who he'd come up after an input session and it, that's what your description is, is, is spot on. You know, kind of, his eyes were big and round and bright and he's going, wow. And last I knew, uh, Ryan was, was teaching English in the yeah. Portland area at, at one of the local language schools. But he... That happens. You're right. It happens yep. on every course, and it's just yeah. a beautiful thing. Well, this is another kind of tangent, but we had a, I had a candidate on a course. It was actually one of the first courses I ran, I think, um, in D.C., but he was probably in his late 60s, um, and he was a tax law expert. So his job was essentially to go into these big companies and do these PowerPoint presentations all about the tax laws. And of course, there that was. That sounds scintillating. Right? <laughs> yeah. But he was such an expert in this field that I uh, think it was David Baldacci had actually, he'd consulted oh. um, in terms of, you know, accuracy in his books when he's talking about these legal tax issues that were happening in his novels. Um, so this guy had, had helped him, like, fact check. Nice. But so his job was to go and do these PowerPoints all about tax laws. And, you know, there was never any real follow up, but he was legally the companies were required to have him come in so mm-hmm. he could say like well i mean i told him the laws if they didn't follow them no, like that's i them. was there i gave yeah. the presentation so he was taking the celta because um he was thinking about retiring soon and thinking about teaching as sort of a second career and after the course he came up to me and he said i don't i don't know if i'm gonna retire i think i'm mm-hmm. just gonna completely change the way i do my job nice. he's like i had no idea I just assumed that was the only way you could do it. Yes. PowerPoint, talk to everybody, tell them the thing. Um, but he's like, I can completely revolutionize the way yep. I do my job to where people are actually going to understand this information at yes. the end. Um, so yeah, it really is amazing how easily um, you can apply this kind of style of learning and teaching to tons of other fields. I think one of the strengths of, of the approach that's taken with CELTA is it's not about the teaching. Yeah. It's not about you as a performer in the classroom. It's not. The focus is on 
what are the students doing? Yep. What are they learning? Yep. Are they learning? How do you know they're learning? Where's exactly. the evidence for it? And you, you shift that from, well, what's sometimes called, you know, the sage on the stage approach where you've got a, um, a, an expert or someone who's informed teaching and they're, you know, just kind of telling everybody what they, what, what they know. And we know that doesn't work. If it right. worked, I wouldn't have had to take algebra one three times when right? I was in high school. <laughs> I would have known loads of things about European history and world history and all of those subjects that we took year after year yeah. after year. If, if the standard approach to teaching worked, we would all be really well informed about exactly. many, many things. But we're not. Yeah. And there, would so be, there are other ways. Yeah, there would be far fewer people graduating who I think get that sort of slap in the face where they've gone through x number of years of school or four years of a university bachelor's degree and they they know things but they sort of have this stark realization when it's time to graduate that they don't actually know how to do anything <laughs> like there are no actionable skills out of that yeah. um, that they can put into practice so having the learning experience be hands-on is essential and i think what a lot of teachers if you haven't had good training don't realize because that's not how any of us were yes. taught yeah. I heard an interesting report <clears throat> the other day on uh, National Public Radio was talking about using something we we all do um, frequently, I think, is looking at YouTube videos so that we can learn how to do something. Mm -hmm. And what's been discovered is once you've watched it once or twice, watching it a bunch more times won't make a lick of difference in terms of <laughs> what you understand and what you'll be able to do. Let's say you're trying to I don't know whether it's installing a garage door or whatever it yeah. happens to be. Um, it won't really help you learn until you actually just get out there and try to do it. Right. We have to try to do things that we don't know how to do in order to learn how to do them. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we don't learn. Such a good point. And that is a perfect segue into what I wanted to say next, which is um, that exact thing that you said, the fact that you have to actually try doing something that you're not confident in, that you don't really know how to do in order to learn how to do it. Because then you see the need right. for what you have to do. Right. Then Until you, you see that yeah. need, you are not open to, to learning. And I think that's a scary thing for most CELTA candidates. Yeah. I think this is one of the biggest challenges I see for my candidates when mm -hmm. I train on CELTA courses is that that feeling when you're not used to it is really uncomfortable. Um, because as we've been talking about pretty much this whole time, the way that a lot of us learned in school was, you know, you get lectured at or you read something and then you have lots and lots of time to memorize it and review it before you're ever tested on it. And the test is something like an essay or a fill in the blank or multiple choice or whatever, where you're not really being put on the spot. Right. Um, and CELTA is so hands-on. And in most courses, you start teaching on like day two. Day two, typically. Yeah. yeah. So for a lot of people, that's terrifying that there's kind of this resistance at first for some candidates or this feeling of like, well, what do you mean I have to get up and do it? I don't know what I'm doing yet. And it's funny to say, 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's the point. Like you can talk about how to ride a bicycle till you're blue in the face, but until the person who wants to learn how to ride the bike actually gets on the bicycle and starts to get a sense of how do I balance? How do I move right. forward? How, how do I use feel? the brakes? That's where the learning takes place, not yep. through the talking. Right, which means that you're going to look maybe not terribly graceful at you're first. Gonna, the bike's going to fall over sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and you're <laughs> going to get bruised. Okay. You're going to have scrapes. You'll be okay. You get up, you get back on the bike, and you try it again. And, and you learn how to do it. Right. So that's one piece of advice I always want, I guess, prospective Celta candidates to know is that you're going to have to have that feeling of being a little bit uncomfortable. And, and it's really helpful to be patient with yourself to know that... Um, it's a different kind of learning than you're probably used to and being comfortable with that, you know, just sort of pushing through that discomfort and saying like, it's okay if I get up in front of the class and feel like I don't know what I'm doing. If I mess up, that's where the learning is going to happen. And that doesn't mean failing. That means developing. And it's okay. Your students are feeling the same way. They're wondering if they're going to do okay. They're wondering how, how they are perceived and they don't know what's going on. So it, <laughs> one of the, and I think that's one of the great values of a CELTA course is you're going through, even though the content that you're learning is different than what the language students are, that you practice with are going through, even though the content's a bit different, the experience is very similar. Mm-hmm. You're put into a, a group of people. You're going to have to learn how to get along with them. You're going to have to learn what the protocol is and, and do your job. And, and of course, you're, you're going to be nervous. They're going to be nervous. But you know what? And I, I this is one of the things I love about ESL teaching is the students, again, because they're motivated. They want mm-hmm. to learn. It's just such a good learning situation to be yeah. in. I, I never enjoy working with students in general, as much as I do with people with language students, mm-hmm. because they're they're so driven and curious, and uh, and they try. Yeah. So, if you're driven and you're curious and you try, you'll <laughs> do okay on the Celta course. Seriously, you'll you, you'll be surprised at. Um, it's a lot of work, true, but you'll be surprised at how much fun it is and how much you will like the students that you'll be working with. They're, they're, they're just a dream to work with. Yeah, I think that's always a helpful way to sort of get out of your head is paying attention to the students and how mm-hmm. much fun they're having and how rewarding that is for them. Mm-hmm. That, you know, your nerves you kind of can have this. fade. <laughs> right. Um, any other advice you would give somebody who's thinking about taking a CELTA, on a CELTA or course? about to take a CELTA or on day yes. one of a CELTA? Um, any center where you take your course uh, will will send you a packet, uh, a pre-course task booklet, basically, before the course begins. I would delve into that as much as you can. And just, it will help you become aware of some of the things that you need to uh, maybe brush up on a little bit um, about how to convey meaning and how to think about working with pronunciation. What it, what kind of things do you need to do when you help people with pronunciation? What does that involve? Mm-hmm. So I'd work on the pre-course task booklet. Um, maybe talk to some, some people who have done the course before. Um, talk to learners, if you can. Um, get a sense of the struggles they have, the 
the things that they find challenging and, and what works well for them, what in their minds, what makes a good classroom situation. Mm, that's what comes to mind. Yeah, at that least. sounds great. Um, looking beyond that, maybe somebody who's just finished a CELTA course, any advice you would give somebody who's just about to go abroad and teach for the first time? Or is there anything you wish you'd known before you went and taught abroad? That first sort of spontaneous experience in Indonesia? Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> you know um, we taught on day one. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I had, actually, I had, I had a week-long uh, training orientation in Singapore. Uh, Okay. It was part of the, the program when I was on my way to Indonesia. But um, I think it's important to just kind of throw yourself into it and let it be okay. Know that you're going to do some things that, you know, may not be the best choices in the classroom when you start off. Mm -hmm. But with with some time and experience, you'll you'll figure a lot of things out. And... Keep in mind, you're not the first one to have gone through it. Many have gone before you. Many will go behind you too. Um, you'll get through it. Just, just enjoy the situation mm -hmm. that you're in. Em embrace imperfection um, because it's sure going to embrace you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, might as well yeah. be a reciprocal relationship. Um, and enjoy the ride. Enjoy the journey. It's it's a wonderful opportunity to experience elements of life, other 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 people's experiences, other people's cultures, different food and music and ways of thinking. And you know, typically it's not a well-paid profession mm -hmm. in terms of monetary uh, value, but in terms of richness of experience it it sure is um, those two years I had uh, in Indonesia back when I was 19 and 20 years old have been two of the most influential and rewarding years of my life they've changed the way I look at the world they've made me a lot more interested in what's happening in other parts of the world uh, when I'm watching the news or reading about things going on often I I think of students that I've had um, you know, in, in, in Poland and, you know, when, when they had the kind of uprising there in the early eighties or when there's a volcano somewhere, sometimes I'll send off an email and say, mm -hmm. Hey, are you okay? Um, you just develop this network of connections to other people who are around the world. And suddenly, I don't know, I, life you know, takes on more significance just because yeah. you're more connected to people in it. So, Absolutely. Well, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Um, thank you so much for your storytelling, for My your pleasure, wisdom, Shannon. For thank you here. for having me on your podcast. And I wish you and Lauren uh, continued success with, with your endeavors. I think what you're doing is a really good thing. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure our paths will cross many times in the future. So I hope so. This might not be the last podcast conversation between, between us. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Your support means so much to us. Feel free to leave a comment below if you enjoyed this and let us know what you want to hear about in upcoming episodes. 
If you know other teachers and travelers, we'd love for you to share this podcast with them too. And tune in this coming Tuesday for our next episode. Until then, you can find us at teflhorizons.com. Let's keep making this big world smaller by expanding horizons. Bye.